You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 24th of February for the listening week that begins the 25th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First up, in honor of um, both President's Day, which recently passed, and Black History Month, which is still ongoing. First article is from theroot.com. Who were the best presidents for black Americans? From President Obama, pardon me, from President Biden to Obama to Lincoln to Trump, experts weigh in on who were the best and worst presidents for black Americans. This is written by Jessica Washington. It was published on the 20th. Let's be real. Even if your love for former President Barack Obama runs deep, most people aren't thinking about their favorite president this weekend. But presidents have an undeniable impact on the lived conditions of black Americans. So this President's Day, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about some of the best and worst presidents for black Americans. Was Barack Obama the best president for black Americans? Of course, we cannot have this conversation without talking about the first black president, Mr. Barack Obama. I don't need to show you a poll to prove that Obama is still incredibly popular among black Americans. Although, if you want one, I can tell you he has a nearly 83% favorability rating among black Americans, according to YouGov. But his legacy is more nuanced when you talk to black scholars like Howard Political Science Associate Professor Dr. K Kenneth, pardon me, Dr. Kenesha Grant. It's a bit of a mixed bag, says Grant, because he is black and has done things that were helpful to black people, but did not do them in the name of blackness. Grant points to the Affordable Care Act as a clear example of a policy that greatly benefited black Americans. The uninsured population of black Americans dramatically decreased due to the ACA. I think it's also the case that there are things that are happening that black people are not excited about, from Barack Obama, said Grant, referencing the deportations of Haitian migrants during the Obama years. Which historical presidents were the best for black Americans? Unfortunately, this is not a straightforward question. Presidencies are inherently shaped by the events and political climate around them, including the makeup of Congress, says Grant. But we can look at the impact of the policies they've pushed and the rhetoric they used. Experts listed Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Jimmy Carter, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Abraham Lincoln as presidents who were able to push for policies that benefited black Americans. Jimmy Carter, everyone loves him because of his attention to issues around farming and some of the veterans' issues that impacted a large amount of black people who live in the South, says Howard Afro Studies and Political Science Professor Jovan McAllister. 
Then there's President Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. In the black community, Abraham Lincoln is heralded for freeing the slaves, says McAllister. But if you take a little closer look, he had absolutely horrible things to say about black people. All right, so the great emancipator is a bit more complicated than our history books mention. What about FDR? When it comes to the New Deal, the set of progressive economic policies most associated with FDR years, black Americans did see benefits, says Grant, but we were also cut out of a lot of the new opportunities. The New Deal comes at a time where America is coming out of an economic crisis, says Grant. It is among the first federal policies that allows people to get some relief. It's important to note that the New Deal is imperfect in that it does not allow black people to have relief at the same rate. You can't write a story about presidents' impact on black Americans without discussing the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In case you needed a little history refresher, President Lyndon B. Johnson spearheaded both of these laws. It's difficult to overstate the importance of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, says Grant. LBJ came to the presidency from the Senate and uses some of his political capital and some of his ability to get things done in the Senate as a way to ensure that these things pass. Who were the worst presidents for black Americans? You might imagine that this conversation completely devolved into a rant about former President Donald J. Trump, and while he made the list, much of the focus fell on former President Ronald Reagan. Reagan is responsible for the war against drugs, explains McAllister. The war on drugs was massively responsible for the boom in mass incarceration, which devastated black communities. Subsequent presidents, including George Bush Sr., only compounded the harm of the drug wars, says McAllister. Reagan also decimated the social safety net, explicitly targeting black communities under the made-up guise of the welfare queen. President Andrew Johnson, who, in addition to terrorizing Native Americans, was incredibly anti-black, also made McAllister's list of worst presidents for black Americans. I'm going to interject here. This is written as Andrew Johnson. I wonder if they meant to write Andrew Jackson. In any case, next section. How does President Joe Biden stack up against past presidents? For our current president, Joe Biden, we decided to chat with Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who has spent the last 40-plus years in politics, Says Representative Waters, Biden made a promise that black people had his back and he was going to have our back. And I think that he's done a very good job of that. Representative Waters pointed, pointed to his appointment of several black officials to head federal agencies, including Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge. She also praised Biden for his leadership during the pandemic. So we're very pleased that his time in office has shown that he really does care about the black community, says Representative Waters. 
Naturally, we couldn't just talk to Biden's political allies about his presidency. McAllister points out that Biden and Democrats are often hamstrung by their desire to appear as unifying figures at the expense of policies that could benefit black Americans and all marginalized groups. You do understand that you have the ability to change the lives of people, says McAllister, but you didn't because you were more concerned that I don't want to look like Republicans. For Grant, Biden's willingness to publicly speak to black Americans in a way no past president has bothered to do is relevant to how she views his presidency. Grant says, if 10 black people are killed in a grocery store in Buffalo, I want you to be able to acknowledge that this was racism. If a president can say this is a racist thing that happened, or policing is systemically, pardon me, systematically problematic, or some other thing that makes it clear that he understands what I feel and what I believe, I think that matters a ton. Continuing with TheRoot.com, this next is written by Chanel Janet, published on the 24th. Is Drake getting ready to retire from rap? The Her Loss rapper, who's gearing up to go on tour this summer, recently discussed what the future holds for him in a new interview. In Tuscan Leather, the opening song of Drake's 2013 album, Nothing Was the Same, the Toronto rapper said, Just give it time. We'll see who's still around a decade from now. Now, nearly 10 since dropping that line, it looks as if he might be gearing up to say goodbye to the rap game. Per Hip Hop DX, the Her Loss rapper recently said as much in a snippet of a new interview with fellow rapper Lil Yachty, released on Thursday. In it, the two sit in chairs on a very picturesque beach as they discuss their respective careers. That's when Drake opened up about the possibility of taking a, quote, graceful exit from his highly successful and highly lucrative career. I think I'm at the point now where I just want to like, I feel like maybe we talked about this the other day, I feel like I'm kind of introducing the concept in my mind of a graceful exit, he said. The full interview is expected to release sometime on Friday, so hopefully the massive artist will go a bit more into how and why he's now entertaining this train of thought after all these years. Whether you like his music or not, it's an undeniable fact that Drake has been at the top of the rap game for at least the last decade. From countless awards to hella memeable moments, the Six Gods' impact on music and culture is one that enviable and I think that means to say is one that is enviable and could probably be dissected in a variety of ways but as the saying goes all good things must come to an end so if we are about to say goodbye to rapper Drake and hello to whatever his next evolution is then I guess he's earned it still LaRue.com this written by Amira Castilla posted on the 24th Crisis text line is here to save black mental health. The free 24-7 resource is making sure black people get the immediate help they need in mental health emergencies.
Every day is a journey through contrasting emotions from successes, failures, love, heartbreak, joy, and grief. And as black people, sometimes those emotions are heightened, given the pressure to act normal and carry on through life's challenges. But what about the times when all that becomes too difficult to carry alone? Crisis text lines Chief Health Officer Dr. Sherry Turner sat down with The Root to explain the importance of the crisis text line, how the texting process works, and where the state of the black community is with mental health. What is Crisis Text Line? Crisis Text Line is a free 24-7 service that connects texters to a crisis counselor trained to meet them at their level and talk them through safe ways to work through feelings that may be too difficult to deal with alone. Crisis Text Line can be reached by texting online chatting or WhatsApp by texting the following words home or hello or hola that's H-O-L-A to 741741 741741 the layout of the conversations According to Crisis Text Line's website, there have been more than 8 million conversations carried out over the last decade, which has helped them to develop a successful routine for their volunteers to help texters. When a texter first sends messages, they are given a privacy information statement and then immediately asked what crisis they are in. An algorithm then categorizes the issue according to what words are used in their explanation. Then a volunteer is matched with the texter. The volunteer will then ask more questions to understand the severity of the issue, give some advice, use careful language to ensure that the person feels safe and listened to, and provide resources that the person can use in the moment and in the future. Once the volunteers and texter agree that the crisis has concluded, the texters have the option to complete an anonymous survey that provides more information about their situation discussed with the volunteer and their demographics, such as age, race, and sexual orientation. This information helps Crisis Text Line to improve their processes. Less than 1% of texters express the possibility of harming themselves. However, volunteers are prepared to try and de-escalate that situation. Volunteers are also supervised by mental health professionals that can take over if the risk of suicide is heightened. Black Texters and the Mental Health Service Stigma Dr. Sherry Turner emphasizes the importance of Crisis Text Line being an anonymous resource because of the stigma in the black community surrounding mental health and receiving care. She said, Black people don't feel trusting of mental health professionals because historically what has happened to us and vulnerabilities where we feel like we've been part of experiments. So there's that history for communities of color. There's the religious spiritual element where folks will turn instead to their church. More and more individuals are in need of mental health support. Unfortunately, some people don't have access to an insurable mental health professional or they don't feel comfortable, or they couldn't find a mental health professional of color who looks like them, who they could feel understood them. 
According to a 2021 United in Empathy report by the text line, 14% of all texters are black and have an alarmingly higher average than the national average for expressing crisis associated with depression, sadness, isolation, loneliness, anxiety, stress, and suicide. 84% of black texters are also female, and a majority are between the ages of 14 and 17. Texters don't always identify themselves, but we have the tools. Pardon me, we give the tools so our volunteers are culturally aware, even if they don't know the actual background. But we do always provide tip sheets that are specific if a volunteer finds out about a texter's race. So let's just say after any sort of racial unrest, like recently with the death of Tyree Nichols or George Floyd's death, we make sure that our 55,000 volunteers are also prepared for current day issues like school shootings. Dr. Turner also drew attention to the unfortunate impact on the mental health of black and other youth of color at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, on top of the racial injustices in the United States. Many parents of children of color are essential workers and were not home to check on the mental status of their children, leading to the uptick of texters expressing loneliness, anxiety, and grief. According to the report, conversations about grief were 13% more common in 2021 than before the pandemic. As a mother herself, Dr. Turner wants parents to understand that checking in on their black children's mental health is no longer a suggestion, but rather an essential part of their child's life. How to get involved with Crisis Text Line. If you would like to become a volunteer crisis counselor, you must be at least 18 years old, have a U.S. Social Security and or a U.S. address, and have a personal computer with reliable internet. For more information about the application and training, visit the Crisis Text Line website, which is at crisistextline.org. Next, some local news from Colorado. This comes from the Daily Camera and was written by Dana Caddy. Children's author and Sudanese refugee Nyaibor, pardon me, Nyaibol Bior shares her story with Boulder County. Half of a book sale proceeds benefit education in South Sudan. This was a report on her appearance on the 18th. Visitors to the Longmont Museum on Saturday got a front row seat to a story of perseverance and self-acceptance told by former Sudanese refugee, author and teacher Nyaibol Bior. Forgive my possible mispronunciation. Bior, who lives in New Mexico, taught special education at Longmont High School from 2016 to 2018 and is the author of the recently published children's book, My Beautiful Colors. Her free talk at the museum was one of a handful of local events put on for Black History Month by NAACP Boulder County and the Executive Committee of African American Cultural Events. Black History Month is very important to me, said Bayor. 
because I feel if it wasn't for those people who came before me to fight for all of our rights, then I wouldn't be here today as a former refugee from South Sudan. Justin Veach, event and auditorium manager for the museum, said the museum has worked with NAACP Boulder County in the past to celebrate Black History Month and Juneteenth, but said they can always do more. Bior's talk was part of a celebration this weekend that included a performance by the Nashville African American Wind Symphony on Sunday in Boulder. Our basic principle is the oneness of mankind, said Catherine O'Leary, one of the event coordinators. We wanted to do something for Black History Month and it just came together. Accompanied by a slideshow presentation with pictures and videos, Bior Gad pardon me, guided the roughly two dozen attendees through her childhood in Sudan and her family's struggle to find asylum amid the devastating civil war. Coming to the U.S. as a young teenager, Bior said she experienced colorism from other black students and was often the target of bullying. She said, Loneliness persisted because I didn't have any friends. I couldn't speak any English, so I didn't really have anyone to communicate with. Through outlets like basketball and reading, however, Bayora overcame that sense of loneliness and realized her own worth. Something in me refused to accept that I was less than anybody else, she said. Being able to stand up for myself was huge. After taking some questions from the audience, Bayor met many guests one-on-one -on -one to sign and sell copies of her book. Benita Hensley, a Longmont resident, said she loved the talk. The way that she can still be resilient and not hateful, that's awesome, said Hensley. Bayor followed her talk at the museum with an appearance at the Lafayette Public Library on Saturday afternoon. Before that, on Friday, she visited three Boulder area schools to meet with students whom she said were good listeners and asked a lot of questions. Around half of the proceeds from Bayor's book sales go to My Refugee Story Foundation, a nonprofit she established this year to help girls and boys receive education in South Sudan. Bior sold around 10 copies at the museum Saturday, but said she cares more about the relationships she's been able to form with people through her work. She said, it's the message that counts for me more than the money. I feel there's a need for stories like mine to be spread so people can see that it does get better. Her next article comes from The Conversation, an online source for news. Globe-trotting black nutritionist Flemmy P. Kittrell revolutionized early childhood education and illuminated hidden hunger. This was written by Brandy Thomas Wells, assistant professor of history at Oklahoma State University, and it was published February 22nd. Nutrition is among the most critical issues of our time. Diet-related illnesses are shortening lifespans, and the lack of conveniently located and affordable nutritious food makes it hard for many Americans to enjoy good health. Physicians are also alarmed by nutritional trends they see among the nation's most vulnerable people, children. I think that the situation would frustrate black nutritionist Flemmy Pansy Kittrell, 
and this may be pronounced Kittrell, that's K-I-T-T-R-E-L-L. If she were alive today, throughout a trailblazing career that spanned half a century, she worked to enhance food security and to improve both diets and children's health under the umbrella of home economics. While you might view home economics as merely a set of practical skills concerning cooking and budgeting, in the mid-20th century it applied scientific concepts to improve home management, strengthen parenting skills, and enhance childhood development. Cottrell went further by making the case for healthy and strong families a tool for diplomacy. While researching black women's global activism for rights and freedom, I became aware of Kittrell's work on behalf of the U.S. State Department, women's organizations, and church groups. I was struck by her pragmatic approach to foreign relations, which emphasized women, children, and the home as the keys to good living and national and global peace and security. I was also stunned by the black nutritionist's commitment to shattering traditional assumptions about home economics and improving the health of low-income families around the globe, especially people of color. Humble Roots Kittrell, the eighth of nine children born to a sharecropping family, grew up in Henderson, North Carolina. She began working as a nursemaid and cook when she was only 10, pardon me, that's 11 years old, in 1919, Kittrell enrolled at Hampton University, pardon me, that's Hampton Institute, a small historically black Virginia college that later became Hampton University. A professor encouraged her to major in home economics. She initially rejected the suggestion, claiming the home was just so ordinary. Kittrell reconsidered once she learned about Ellen H. Swallow Richards, the first woman to attend Massachusetts Institute of Technology and one of the nation's earliest female professional chemists. Kittrell realized that the field was about more than cooking and sewing. Furthermore, women who majored in the subject could then pursue sciences that were closed to them because of their gender. With the growing belief that the home and family were the basis of society, Cottrell chose to major in home economics rather than political science or economics. Nutrition and Black Families After her 1928 graduation, Cottrell briefly taught at a high school before becoming the Director of Home Economics and Dean of Women at Bennett College, an historically black college in Greensboro, North Carolina. During a 12-year tenure there, she created a nursery center that trained parents and provided childcare. The center also served as a laboratory for experimenting with different teaching techniques. Cottrell drew on this research when she became the first black woman to earn a doctorate at Cornell University. In her 1936 doctoral dissertation, she argued that the health of black families could be improved by focusing on infant feeding practices and parental education. She was the first black woman to get a doctorate in nutrition at any college or university. In 1940, she returned to Hampton. During World War II, Kittrell and her students taught local families how to ration and substitute food. The Home Economics Department also joined 
pardon me, female students in hosting evening activities, including dances for black military trainees and their families. Four years later, Kittrell became the head of Howard University's Home Economics Department, and she remained on that faculty for 28 years. Taking advantage of Howard's Washington, D.C. location, Kittrell persuaded national leaders that home economics could help transform society at home and around the world. She spent so much time working and traveling for the U.S. government that one biographer called her, quote, a goodwill ambassador with a cookbook. Hidden Hunger at Home and Abroad in 1947, the State Department sent Kittrell to Liberia to conduct a nutrition study. Her efforts supported an American commitment to strengthen democratic, pardon me, diplomatic and military ties with countries around the world. In her follow-up report, Kittrell explained that while food shortages and hunger were not significant issues, more than 90% of Liberians suffered from vitamin deficiencies resulting in what she called hidden hunger. Though she did not invent the term, she was among the first to draw widespread attention to the issue at home and abroad, arguing that what happens in one place often occurs in others. Kittrell explored the U.S. to examine diet issues at homes. In 1949, she published a study comparing the diet and food choices of black and white Americans she showed that the illnesses that many black Americans experienced were tied to racial discrimination in housing, employment, and medical services, rather than poor decision-making. In later years, academic, professional, and activist organizations similarly applied this intersectional lens to nutrition campaigns. Nutrition and Democracy American foreign policy leaders found Kittrell's pragmatic and balanced approach indispensable in forging alliances during the Cold War. In 1950, Kittrell per persuaded the State Department's Fulbright program to send her to India, which had recently won its independence from the UK. She returned there in 1953 under a government program that provided technical expertise to newly independent nations as a form of diplomacy. In the 1950s, Cottrell traveled across Africa to improve relations with African states that had criticized the U.S. for boasting of its freedoms while denying basic civil rights to many of its own citizens. In September of 1958, the nutritionist traveled to Ghana, the first West African country to gain independence from a colonizing power. She met with Ghanaian political leaders and members of women's organizations, delivering lectures on home economics and the value of higher education for women. Ghanaians asked Cottrell about racial incidents, including the 1957 Little Rock crisis, in which a white mob tried to stop nine black students from integrating a public high school. Cottrell cast this incident, which violated the Brown versus Board 1954 Supreme Court ruling that rendered segregation in public schools unconstitutional as a Southern dilemma rather than a national one. She also optimistically emphasized black Americans' progress since emancipation and contended that the U.S. Constitution would prevail 
in ensuring equality. An appetite for justice. Though Cottrell's answers sidestepped larger issues of discrimination at home, she claimed to reject U.S. boosterism in her thinking about cross-cultural interactions, family, and society. She argued that newly independent nations had much to teach Americans. Even more, Cottrell claimed to see herself not as a representative of the U.S., but as a citizen of the world. A closer look at Cottrell's activities reveals that she maintained a strong appetite for justice. Even as a dedicated bureaucratic infighter, Cottrell was willing to move beyond those bounds. In 1967, for example, she protested apartheid in South Africa, the system of segregation that oppressed that country's non-white communities and privileged the white majority, pardon me, white minority, Incensed by American inaction, Cottrell became one of five Americans to stage a fly-in, an impromptu trip in which she and her colleagues sought to enter the country without visas to dramatize their protest. In a 1977 interview with the Black Women's Oral History Interviews Project of the Harvard University Radcliffe Institute, Cottrell hinted that she was engaged in other acts of protest slyly suggesting that she was, quote, very fortunate not to have gotten into more trouble. Three years later, in an interview for a faculty profile with Howard University, Cottrell boldly claimed that she had not been afraid to speak against evil as I see it. These statements suggest she was more of a strategist and activist than many people of the time believed. Head start Cottrell kept traveling extensively in the 1960s. She took trips to Russia and several African countries on behalf of the United Nations and professional women's and religious organizations, such as the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and the United Methodist Church. Cottrell also increased her focus on the needs of U.S. children. In the 1960s, one in five U.S. children lived in poverty. With the conviction that good living began at a young age, Cottrell expanded Howard University's nursery program with a deeper focus on parents whom she contended were the key to stronger families. That center became an early model for the Head Start program, which emerged as part of Lyndon B. Johnson's War on Poverty. Refusing to sit still enough to hold hands, her, quote, Cottrell never married or had children. Instead, as her archival papers at Howard University's Moreland Spingarn Research Center show, she dedicated herself to assisting others by cultivating strong families through nutritious habits and healthy children. Read one more from the conversation for this week, segueing over to an article about the NAACP. Looking for a date here to tell you when this was posted, uh, but I don't... Oh, here it is. This is an archived article from 2020. A century ago, James Weldon Johnson became the first black person to head the NAACP. I see no author... Oh, pardon me. I see Anthony Siracusa is the author. In this moment of national racial reckoning, many Americans are taking time to learn about chapters in U.S. history left out of their school textbooks, 
the early years of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, a civil rights group that initially coalesced around a commitment to end the brutal practice of lynching in the United States, is worth remembering now. An interracial group of women and men founded the group that would soon become known as the NAACP in 1909. A coalition of white journalists, lawyers, and progressive reformers led the effort. It would take another 11 years until, in 1920, James Weldon Johnson became the first black person to formally serve as that, as its top official. As I explain in my forthcoming book, Nonviolence Before King, The Politics of Being and the Black Freedom Struggle, interracial organizing was extremely rare in the early 20th century, but where it did take place, like in many of the summer of 2020's Black Lives Matter protests, it was because some white Americans united with black Americans over their shared concern about wanton violence directed against black people. Lynching in America. Between 1877 and 1945, more than 4,400 black Americans were lynched. Many of these lynchings were public events that attracted thousands of spectators in a carnival-like atmosphere. A violent attack by white people on the black community in Abraham Lincoln's longtime hometown inspired the NAACP's founding. In August 1908, Two African-American men in Springfield, Illinois, were accused without clear evidence of murder and assault and then taken into custody. When a white mob that had organized to lynch the two men, who were Joe James and George Richardson, failed to locate them, it lynched two other black men instead. Those were Scott Burton and William Donegan. White mobs raged for days afterwards, burning black homes and businesses to the ground. Only after Illinois Governor Charles Deneen called in thousands of the state's National Guardsmen was the white mob violence quelled. The call for racial justice. Two of the NAACP's most prominent African-American founders were W.E.B. Du Bois, a sociologist, historian, activist, and author, and the journalist and activist Ida B. Wells, who had been publicly challenging lynching since the early 1890s. They were joined by a number of white people, including New York Post publisher Oswald Garrison Villard and social worker Florence Kelly, in issuing the call for racial justice on the centenary of Abraham Lincoln's birth, February 12, 1909. The group organized a precursor to the NAACP, which was known as the National Negro Committee in 1909, which built on earlier efforts known as the Niagara Movement, this loose affiliation of black and white people called on all believers in democracy to join in a national conference for the discussion of present evils, the voicing of protests, and the renewal of the struggle for civil and political liberty. Du Bois chaired the May 1910 conference that led to the NAACP's official formation. As the historian Patricia Sullivan writes, the NAACP emerged as a militant, quotes, group focused on ensuring equal protection under the law for black Americans. The NAACP's founders, in their words, envisioned a moral struggle for the brain and soul of America. They saw lynching as the preeminent threat not only to black life in America but to democracy itself 
and they began to organize chapters across the nation to wage legal challenges to violence and segregation. The group also, pardon me, also focused its early efforts on challenging portrayals of black men as violent brutes, starting in its own publication in 1910 called The Crisis. Du Bois was tapped to edit the publication and Wells was excluded from the early work despite her expertise and prominence as a writer, an exclusion she later blamed on Du Bois. Although the group's early work was an interracial effort, according to historian Patricia Sullivan, all members of its initial executive committee were white. James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson joined the organization as a field secretary in 1916, pardon me, 1916 and quickly expanded the NAAC's work into the U.S. South. Johnson was already an accomplished figure having served as U.S. Consul to Venezuela and Nicaragua under the Taft and Roosevelt administrations. Johnson also wrote a novel called The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, that's EX-Colored Man, a powerful literary work about a black man born with skin light enough to pass for white, and he wrote with his brother J. Rosamond Johnson the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, which to this day serves as the unofficial black national anthem. As field secretary, Johnson oversaw circulation of the crisis throughout the South. The NAACP's membership grew from 8,700-ish in 1916 to 90,000 in 1920-4 years, as the number of its local chapters exploded from 70 to 395. Johnson also organized more than 10,000 marches, marchers, pardon me, in the NAACP's silent protest parade of 1917, the first major street protest staged against lynching in the U.S. These clear successes led the board to name Johnson to be the first person and the first black American to serve as the NAACP's executive secretary in November 1920, cementing black control over the organization. He united the hundreds of newly organized local branches in national legal challenges to white violence and anti-black discrimination and made the NAACP the most influential organization in the fight for black equality before World War II. Johnson united local chapters in advocating for the introduction of an anti-lynching bill in Congress in 1921. Despite efforts in 2020 to finally accomplish this goal, the U.S. still lacks a law on the books outlawing racist lynching. Johnson did, however, preside over the NAACP when the group notched its first of many major Supreme Court wins. In 1927, the court ruled in Nixon v. Herndon that a Texas law barring black people from participating in Democratic Party primaries violated the Constitution. Johnson's tenure at the NAACP's helm ended in 1930, but his ability to unite local chapters in national litigation laid much of the groundwork for numerous Supreme Court wins in the years ahead, including the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision, marking the beginning of, an, of the end for legalized segregation in the United States. The work continues. 
Among Johnson's contribution to the NAACP was hiring Walter White, an African-American leader who succeeded Johnson as executive secretary. White presided over the organization between 1930 and 1955, a period that included many successful legal actions. The struggle launched by Du Bois, Wells, and Johnson and their white allies a century ago continues today. The killing of black Americans that led to the NAACP's founding remains a harrowing continuity from the Jim Crow era. In 2020, 155 years after the Civil War ended, the people of Mississippi voted to remove the Confederate battle flag from their state flag, confirming an act Mississippi lawmakers undertook a few months earlier. Utah and Nebraska stripped archaic slavery provisions from their state constitutions. Alabama nixed language mandating school segregation from its state constitution. These changes were the result of millions of Americans joining together to take action against racism, a sign that an interracial movement for justice in America had never been stronger, has, pardon me, has never been stronger. My next article comes from the New York Times. It was posted February 16th and written by Alan Schertstuhl. Amiri Baraka's Blues People Comes Home to the Apollo. The trumpeter and composer Russell Gunn will premiere The Blues and Its People, a suite inspired by Baraka's influential text to mark its 60th anniversary. When he first read Amiri Baraka's epical study, Blues People, Negro Music in White America, originally published in 1963, Russell Gunn felt that he had already understood, on some level, the book's urgent themes. That's not just because blues people, which centers the blues as the foundation of American music and the lives of black Americans as the foundation of the blues, has been widely influential, shaping public and institutional understanding of the history of the blues, jazz, and American culture. While growing up in East St. Louis in the 1970s and early 80s, Gunn, the trumpeter, composer, and bandleader, had always felt that truth already in a way he links to ancestral memory. When the teacher would leave the classroom, all of us would beat rhythms on our desk, Gunn recalled in a late January Zoom interview from his Atlanta home. He went on, somebody would rap and then we'd take turns. This is what we did naturally, before we knew anything about New York or people getting signed for their rapping. We'd never heard of a drum circle, never heard of a djembe or a griot. That experience exemplifies deeper aspects of the theories that Baraka, who died in 2014, first laid out in Blues People and then explored for the rest of his life that the music's history is an ongoing community narrative of a people and their adaptation to and adoption of American life. It's a story forged not just by African roots, work songs and church choirs, field calls and bebop, storied blues and jazz masters. Instead, it's a history still being lived and written wherever its people gather and make it. The Apollo Theater stands singular among those gathering spots. On Saturday, Gunn and his genre-defying big band, the Royal Crunk Jazz Orchestra, 
will premiere his Baraka-inspired suite, The Blues and Its People, at the Harlem Institution. A host of soloists and performers, many with deep connections to Baraka, will augment the 24-member band. The saxophonist and poet Oliver Lake, the singer Jasmia Horn, the trombonist Craig Harris, the Grammy-winning vibraphonist Stephen Harris, the poet Jessica Kerr Moore, and West, the West African djembe player Weedy Braima. The suite is searching and soaring, alive with deep blues, church testifying, and vigorous rump shakers as it charts the path that Baraka laid out. Selections like the Congo Square Root, which kicks off with irresistible second-line drumming, and the boundary-crossing dance-along closer, no separation, make a party out of history. Baraka's book starts with a call and response, says Leatrice Elzi, the Apollo's senior director of programming who commissioned the work. In the tradition of black folk, call and response and the drum beats throughout our entire being, in the rhythm of how we speak, in artistic pieces, and on that Apollo stage. Dr. Fredara Hadley, an ethnomusicologist professor at Juilliard, noted, you can't have call and response by yourself. When she teaches blues people, a book she finds continually rewarding and challenging, Hadley emphasizes black Americans' quote, ongoing engagement with Africa and African music generations after enslavement ends. She said, it's asking what and where is home the music's part of the grassroots exercises of pardon me, creating one's world, fashioning one's self, and making one's self whole, all inside a community space. The music is the medicine. That echoes Baraka's own call for the art, pardon me, that's for art for the sake of evolution, as in art expressive of and directed to community, Made from the Apollo stage as he introduced the consciousness-raising Last Poets Collective in 1972. Gunn called that stage the mecca of what I represent as a musician. He has blended jazz and hip-hop since the 90s, notably on his Grammy-nominated Ethnomusicology album series. On its three albums and occasional live performances, the Atlanta-based RKJO performs with grit and power a keen sense of jazz history, a searching, cosmic-mindedness, and pure funk with roots in southern hip-hop. Gunn directs Ronald Carter, his band director at East St. Louis Lincoln Senior High School, with showing him that despite clear harmonic and rhythmic differences, the music that they played in school was not fundamentally different from the music on the radio or in his grandmother's church. It's all part of the same continuum, said Gunn. And he credits Branford Marsalis with reminding him when Gunn played in Marsalis's 90s jazz meets hip-hop ensemble Buckshot Le Fonk, how to play music that's serious, deep, and meaningful without being, quote, pure self-indulgent expletive. Gunn laughed, recalling how some RKJO members have complained about how difficult his compositions can be to master. This is high-level music for sure, he said, but it's still music, and it's still for the people. That idea is at the heart of both Baraka's book and Gunn's suite. What kind of music do you play, asks Oliver Lake, in his poem, 
separation, now the centerpiece of the final movement of The Blues and Its People. Lake's answer, the good kind. The poem is a blazing statement about how labels divide and separate, how Aretha Franklin and Sun Ra are the same, and how Lake prefers all my food on the same plate. All of it is valid, Lake said last month in a spirited Zoom roundtable interview with musicians collaborating on the project. All of it is equal, if you have it in your heart and are sincere what you present. Baraka likewise addressed arguments over labels, noting in a discussion of the avant-garde movement in jazz, in Blues People, the controversy over whether this music is jazz or not seems foolish and academic since the genre does not determine the quality of the expression. Lake has toured the world with his bands, including Trio 3 and the World Saxophone Quartet, but he radiates joy when speaking about what it means to play the Apollo. There's nothing like playing at home, in our community, in every hood, in every major city of the United States. We need to have our institutions in there and present. Stephen Harris, who will be performing on Saturday, added, I feel very strongly in the work I do that I've got to put black people's stuff where black people can get it. Growing up in upstate New York, Harris studied classical music, though he said he never felt comfortable in its world. Blues People has started me on a long journey home, he said. I'm supposed to utilize my own intellectual capital to understand and to empower and to uplift the stories of my own people. Harris now teaches at Rutgers and lives in Newark, a city still being shaped by the legacy of Baraka, who lived there much of his life. His son, Ross Baraka, is its mayor. Craig Harris, the trombonist, often encourages young musicians to get a copy of Blues People and a dictionary to better understand, quote, the continuum of deep African thought from beyond 500 years in this hemisphere and how it goes all the way through us. He reminisced about the sense of open-door community at Baraka's black, red, and green home in Newark, not just the thinkers and artists who happened by, Nina Simone lived there for a time, saying that it reminded her of Africa, but the neighborhood kids shooting baskets while Baraka wrote, and the family's deep connection to its neighborhood. We used to always talk about the we within the me, or the me within the we, said Harris. That was him to the core, and that's the whole essence of blues people. It's the way we talk, the way we walk. We never move by ourselves. We always move together. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the DAV Charitable Trust. Empowering veterans to live high-quality lives with respect and dignity. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777